This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford, Beati Immaculati. Part One, Two. I don't know how it is best to put this thing down, whether it would be better to try and tell the story from the beginning, as if it were a story, or whether to tell it from this distance of time as it reached me from the lips of Leonora, or from those of Edward himself. So I shall just imagine myself for a fortnight or so at one side of the fireplace of a country cottage, with a sympathetic soul opposite me, and I shall go on talking in a low voice while the sea sounds in the distance and overhead the great black flood of wind polishes the bright stars. From time to time we shall get up and go to the door and look out at the great moon and say, why it is nearly as bright as in Provence. And then we shall come back to the fireside with just the touch of a sigh, because we are not in that Provence where even the saddest stories are gay. Consider the lamentable history of Pierre Vidal. Two years ago Florence and I motored from Biarritz to La Tour, which is in the Black Mountains. In the middle of a tortuous valley there rises up an immense pinnacle, and on the pinnacle are four castles, La Tour, the Towers. And the immense mistral blew down that valley which was the way from France into Provence, so that the silver-gray olive leaves appeared like hair flying in the wind, and the tufts of rosemary crept into the iron rocks that they might not be torn up by the roots. It was, of course, poor dear Florence who wanted to go to La Tour. You are to imagine that, however much her bright personality came up from Stamford, Connecticut, she was yet a graduate of Poughkeepsie. I never could imagine how she did it, the queer, chattery person that she was, with the faraway look in her eyes, which wasn't, however, in the least romantic. I mean that she didn't look as if she were seeing poetic dreams or looking through you, for she hardly ever did look at you, holding up one hand as if she wished to silence any objection or any comment for the matter of that. She would talk. She would talk about William the Silent, about Gustave the Loquacious, about Paris frocks, about how the poor dressed in 1337, about Fantin Latour, about the Paris Lyon Mediterranean train deluxe, about whether it would be worthwhile to get off at Tarascon and go across the wind-swept suspension bridge over the Rhone to take another look at the Beaucaire. We never did take another look at the Beaucaire, of course. Beautiful Beaucaire with the high, triangular white tower that looked as thin as a needle and as tall as the flat iron between Fifth and Broadway, Beaucaire with the great walls on the top of the pinnacle surrounding an acre and a half of blue irises beneath the tallness of the stone pines. What a beautiful thing the stone pine is. No, we never did go back anywhere. Not to Heidelberg, not to Hamelin, not to Verona, not to Montmajour, not so much as to Carcassonne itself. We talked of it, of course, but I guess Florence got all she wanted out of one look at a place. She had the seeing eye. I haven't, unfortunately, so that the world is full of places to which I want to return, towns with the blinding white sun upon them, 
stone pines against the blue of the sky, corners of gables all carved and painted with stags and scarlet flowers and crow-stepped gables with a little saint at the top, and grey and pink palazzi and walled towns a mile or so back from the sea on the Mediterranean between Leghorn and Naples. Not one of them did we see more than once, so that the whole world for me is like spots of colour in an immense canvas. Perhaps if it weren't so, I should have something to catch hold of now. Is all this digression, or isn't it digression? Again, I don't know. You, the listener, sit opposite me, but you are so silent. You don't tell me anything. I am, at any rate, trying to get you to see what sort of life it was I led with Florence and what Florence was like. Well, she was bright, and she danced. She seemed to dance over the floors of castles and over seas and over and over and over the salons of Modestes and over the plage of the Riviera like a gay, tremulous beam reflected from water upon a ceiling. And my function in life was to keep that bright thing in existence. And it was almost as difficult as trying to catch with your hand that dancing reflection. And the task lasted for years. Florence's aunts used to say that I must be the laziest man in Philadelphia. They'd never been to Philadelphia, and they had a New England conscience. You see, the first thing they said to me when I called in on Florence in the little ancient colonial wooden house beneath the high, thin-leaved elms... The first question they asked me was not how I did, but what did I do? And I did nothing. I suppose I ought to have done something, but I didn't see any call to do it. Why does one do things? I just drifted in and wanted Florence. First I had drifted in on Florence at a Browning Tea or something of the sort at 14th Street, which was then still residential. I don't know why I had gone to New York. I don't know why I had gone to the tea. I don't see why Florence should have gone to that sort of spelling bee. It wasn't the place at which, even then, you'd expect to find a Poughkeepsie graduate. I guess Florence wanted to raise the culture of the Stuyvesant crowd, and did it as she might have gone in slumming. Intellectual slumming, that was what it was. She always wanted to leave the world a little more elevated than she found it. Poor dear thing. I have heard her lecture Teddy Ash Burnham by the hour on the difference between the Franz Halls and a Wouverman's and why the pre-Mycenaean statues were cubical with knobs on the top. I wonder what he made of it. Perhaps he was thankful. I know I was. For do you understand my whole attentions? My whole endeavors were to keep poor dear Florence on to topics like the finds at Knossos and the mental spirituality of Walter Pater. I had to keep her at it, you understand, or she might die. For I was solemnly informed that if she became excited over anything, or if her emotions were really stirred, her little heart might cease to beat. For twelve years I had to watch every word that any person uttered in any conversation, and I had to head it off what the English call things, off love, poverty, crime, religion, and the rest of it. Yes, the first doctor that we had when she was carried off the ship at Havre assured me that this must be done. Good God, are all these fellows monstrous idiots? Or is there a Freemasonry between all of them from end to end of the earth? That's what makes me think of that fellow, Pierre Vidal. Because, of course, his story is culture. And I had to head her towards culture. And at the same time, it's, 
it's so funny and she hadn't got to laugh and it's so full of love and she wasn't to think of love. D do you know the story? Latour of the Four Castles had for Charlatane Blanche somebody or other who was called as a term of commendation La Louvre, the she-wolf, and Pierre Vidal, the troubadour, paid his consort to La Louvre and she wouldn't have anything to do with him. So, out of compliment to her, the things people do when they're in love. He dressed himself up in wolf skins and went up into the black mountains and the shepherds of the Montagnois and their dogs mistook him for a wolf and he was torn with fangs and beaten with clubs. So they carried him back up to La Tour and La Louvre wasn't all impressed. They polished him up and her husband remonstrated seriously with her. Vidal was, you see, a great poet and it was not proper to treat a great poet with indifference. So... Pierre Vidal declared himself Emperor of Jerusalem, or somewhere, and the husband had to kneel down and kiss his feet, though La Louvre wouldn't. And Pierre set sail in a rowing boat with four companions to redeem the holy sepulchre. And they struck on a rock somewhere, and at great expense the husband had to fit out an expedition to fetch him back, and Pierre Vidal fell all over the lady's bed while the husband, who was a most ferocious warrior, remonstrated some more about the courtesy that is due to great poets. But I suppose La Louvre was the more ferocious of the two. Anyhow, that's all that came of it. Isn't that the story? You haven't an idea of the queer old-fashionedness of Florence's aunts, the Mrs. Hurlbird, nor yet of her uncle. An extraordinarily lovable man, that Uncle John. Thin, gentle, and with a heart that made his life very much what Florence afterwards became. He didn't reside at Stamford. His home was in Waterbury, where the watches come from. He had a factory there, which in our queer American way would change its functions almost year to year. For nine months or so it would manufacture buttons out of bone, then it would suddenly produce brass buttons for coachman's liveries, then it would take a turn at embossed tin lids for candy boxes. The fact is that the poor old gentleman, with his weak and fluttering heart, didn't want his factory to manufacture anything at all. He wanted to retire, and he did retire when he was seventy. But he was so worried at having all the street boys in the town point after him and exclaim, there goes the laziest man in Waterbury, that he tried taking a tour around the world, and Florence and a young man called Jimmy went with him. It appears from what Florence told me that Jimmy's functions with Mr. Hurlbird was to avoid exciting topics for him. We had to keep him, for instance, out of political discussions. For the poor man was a violent Democrat in days when you might travel the world over without finding anything but a Republican. Anyhow, they went around the world. I think an anecdote is about the best way to give you an idea of what the old gentleman was like, for it is perhaps important that you should know what the old gentleman was. He had a great deal of influence in forming the character of my poor dear wife. Just before they set out from San Francisco for the South Seas, Old Mr. Hurlbird said he must take something with him to make little presents to people he met on the voyage, and it struck him that the things to take for that purpose were oranges, because California is the orange country, and comfortable folding chairs. So he bought I don't know how many cases of oranges, the great cool California oranges, and half a dozen folding chairs in a special case that he always kept in his cabin. There must have been half a cargo of fruit. For to every person on board, the several steamers that they employed, to every person with whom he had so much as a nodding acquaintance, he gave an orange every morning. And they lasted him right around the girdle of this mighty globe of ours. When they were at North Cape, even, he saw on the horizon, 
poor dear thin man that he was, a lighthouse. Hello, he says to himself. These fellows must be very lonely. Let's take them some oranges. So he had a boatload of his fruit out and had himself rowed to the lighthouse on the horizon. The folding chairs he lent to any lady that he came across and liked, or who seemed tired and invalidish on the ship. And so guarded against his heart, and having his niece with him, he went round the world. He wasn't obtrusive about his heart. He wouldn't have known he had one. He only left it to the physical laboratory at Waterbury for the benefit of science, since he considered it to be quite an extraordinary kind of heart. And the joke of the matter was that, when at the age of eighty-four, just five days before poor Florence, he died of bronchitis and was found to be absolutely nothing the matter with that organ. It had certainly jumped or squeaked or something just sufficiently to take in the doctors. But it appears that that was because of an odd formation of the lungs. I don't much understand about these matters. I inherited his money because Florence died five days after him. I wish I hadn't. It was a great worry. I had to go out to Waterbury just after Florence's death because the poor dear fellow had left a good many charitable requests, and I had to appoint trustees. I didn't like the idea of their not being properly handled. Yes, it was a great worry. And just as I had got things roughly settled, I received the extraordinary cable from Ashburnham begging me to come back and have a talk with him. And immediately afterwards came one from Leonora saying, Yes, please, do come. You could be so helpful. It was as if he had sent the cable without consulting her and had afterwards told her. Indeed, that was pretty much what had happened, except that he had told the girl and the girl told the wife. I arrived, however, too late to be of any good, if I could have been of any good. And then I had my first taste of English life. It was amazing. It was overwhelming. I shall never forget the polished cob that Edward beside me drove. The animal's action, its high stepping, its skin that was like satin, and the peace, and the red cheeks, and the beautiful, beautiful old house. Just near Branshaw Tellera it was, and we descended on it from the high, clear, wind-swept waste of the new forest. I tell you it was amazing to arrive there from Waterbury. And it came into my head, for Teddy Ashburnham, you remember, had cabled me to come and have a talk with him, that it was unbelievable that anything essentially calamitous could happen to that place and those people. I tell you it was the very spirit of peace, and Leonora, beautiful and smiling with her coils of yellow hair, stood on the top doorstep with a butler and footman and a maid or so behind her, and she just said, So glad you've come as if I'd run down to lunch from a town ten miles away instead of having come half the world over at the call of two urgent telegrams. The girl was out with the hounds, I think. And that poor devil beside me was in an agony. Absolute, hopeless, dumb agony, such as passes the mind of man to imagine. End of Part 1, 2 of The Good Soldier Recording by Richard Grove